We've been in a series called Wonder Woman from the book of Esther. We took a break from it last week, but I want to jump right back into it this morning and pick it up in chapter 6. Turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. Now, for those of you who are new here, here's a list of the characters in the book of Esther. I'll try to give you a quick summary. There's a guy by the name of Xerxes. He's the king of Persia. Some of your Bibles may read Ahasuerus, the same person, just different uh, languages uh, um, in which his name is spelled. The second one is a guy by the name of Haman. He's the prime minister of Persia, the second in command. He's also a racist. There's a woman by the name of Esther who is the queen of Persia. What's unique about her is that she's Jewish. Then there's a man by the name of Mordecai. That's Esther's uncle. And he is the nemesis of Haman. You'll see why this morning. Now, Haman, in his hatred for Mordecai and the Jewish people, has tricked the king into issuing a decree that on the 14th of the month of Adar, which, by the way, is actually March in our calendar, the edict said that all of the Jewish people in Persia are to be annihilated. Now, what the king nor Haman know is that the queen herself isn't Persian. As I said, she's actually Jewish. At the urging of her uncle Mordecai, Esther has put together a plan to persuade the king to reverse the evil edict that Haman had tricked him into signing. And when we last left Esther, as part of her plan to persuade the king, she'd invited him and Haman over to her place for dinner, wined and dined them, but then for some unexplained reason decided against appealing to the king that night. Instead, she opts to invite them over to dinner again the next night. Now, I have to tell you that chapter 6 Uh, is probably my favorite chapter in all of the Bible, and I think you'll see why. It is both sad and ironic at the same time, all right? And comical, too, all right? Sad, is that possible? Sad, comical, and ironic? Why don't we just say comical and ironic? Then you'll understand as you see this. All right, what's fascinating is what happens in between the first night that the king and Haman come over for dinner, and the second. Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Is this a coincidence that he can't sleep? I think this is another example of how God often works in our lives, rarely conspicuous, but always involved in the storyline of our lives. Whatever the reason the king can't sleep, and of the 20 different kinds of diversions that would have been available to him, he happens to order the book of the chronicles of his reign to be read to him. Now, these are kind of like the minutes and the decisions from all of his meetings and all of his actions throughout his reign. In other words, this is an ancient version of Ambien. Have you ever read minutes to meetings? Like they're really boring, right? So this is an ancient version of Ambien to help him sleep. Years ago, I decided um, at another church to check if any of my board members read the minutes of our meetings. And so at random places throughout the minutes, just in big bold letters, I wrote, Elvis is alive. Elvis is alive. Over and over. No one said a word because no one had read the minutes. The king can't sleep, and so he sends his one of his uh, attendants down to the cellar, to the shelves where the minutes are kept. Now, here's the thing. 
Xerxes has been king for 12 years now. That's a lot of meeting minutes to choose from. The attendant grabs one of the books of the minutes. Maybe they're classified by year, by month. I don't know how they're classified, whatever. But he chooses one of the books, blows the dust off, trudges back up to the king's suite, opens the book, turns the thick, yellowed pages randomly, and lands on a section of the minutes. And he begins to read aloud to the king, verse 2. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, those of you who've been with us, do you remember this? You guys remember this? It happened back in, in chapter 2. These two guards, uh, they, uh, as it says, they conspired to kill the king, but Mordecai overheard them. He told the queen, who then told the queen and gave credit to Mordecai. Excuse me, the queen told the king. You got that? And then gave credit to Mordecai, all right? And there was this note at the end of the chapter of chapter 2 uh, about this that kind of seemed irrelevant at the time, but I'll, I'll put it up here on the screen. You'll see it. This is back in chapter 2. It says, when the report was investigated about Mordecai, or excuse me, about Bigthana, Teresh, and Mordecai, um, when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. And at the time, when you read it, you're like, mm, that's interesting that they said that somebody included, the min- included it in the minutes, but it seems a little small to include in the Bible. But now we understand. Now we understand what's happening. You know, as I've said before, God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And the reason for that, I think, is that the author was, was probably writing during the time of Xerxes in the Persian Empire. And so he had to write this book in a way that encouraged the Jewish people but didn't jeopardize the Jewish people by making the king look bad. And so he never includes the name of God. And yet it's clear, isn't it, again, that God is all over the events of this book. Rarely conspicuous, but always involved in the storyline of our lives. Watch what happens next in verse 3. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. Now, Uh, Kings in the ancient Near East were big about rewarding people who blew the whistle on assassination plots. It was a brutal time to live, plots on a king's life, fairly regular, and so rewarding people generously was a great life insurance plan. But through some bureaucratic slip-up, Mordecai was never rewarded. And in verse 4, the king says he wants to correct this oversight. And so he asks who of his key advisors are in the building. Because remember, Xerxes isn't the kind of guy who can make decisions on his own. He always needs people around him to help him, even this decision. It's probably early in the morning by now. Perhaps the sun has just risen. One of his attendants tell him, well, Haman's in the court. Now, why was Haman in the court? Well, we know from the end of the last chapter that Haman wanted to go and convince the king to let him impale his nemesis, Mordecai the Jew, as he calls him, on a 75-foot high stake that he is having built even as they speak. So Haman is up and at him early in the morning. Early bird gets the worm. And the king says, send him in. Look at what happens. Skip down to verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? 
(laughs) Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than moi? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Okay, now here's what I think. I don't think that an answer with that kind of specificity comes off the top of your head. Like, I think this is something he has fantasized about many, many times. And it's imprinted in his brain down to these exact details. And how narcissistic does he have to be that he can't possibly imagine that in all of the Persian Empire, there might be one other person that the king would want to honor? No, it's just him. He's the only one. Watch what happens, because this is fun. It's beautiful. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Haman, excuse me. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. Now stop, stop, stop. Don't you know in this moment that Haman's ego is just swelling and his heart is pumping and he's like, this is what I've always waited for. He says, the king says, go, go, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, don't neglect anything that you have recommended. You know, there are days when things start to go bad very early and you know it's going to be a really tough day, right? Like if if you're on the way to work and your car horn gets stuck when you're behind a motorcycle brigade of hell's angels, probably going to be a bad day. Like if your twin forgets your birthday, probably a sign it's going to be a bad day. When you're halfway through your bowl of cereal and you notice that the flakes in your cereal are moving on their own, probably going to be a tough day. And when the king tells you to honor the man that you hate most in the world, you know for sure this is going to be a terrible, no good, bad day. But watch this. Things go from bad to worse. Verse 11, so Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and he And he led him on horseback throughout the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. He has to shout this to everyone in the city to hear. Oh, the disgrace. Oh, the the humiliation. Oh, the irony. But it's still going to get worse. He has to go home to his wife. You remember his wife, right, from the last time? Zeresh, that's her name, just the night before all of this happened. Haman was all upset that, that he couldn't enjoy all of the riches and honor because that Jew, Mordecai, wouldn't show him respect. And so Zeresh said to him, well, listen, this is no big deal. Just go build a 75-foot high stake and pale him on it tomorrow, and then you go have cocktails and dinner with the king and queen and be happy. No problem. That's the kind of woman this is. She's a cold-blooded woman. And this is what Haman has to go home to. Haman gets home and he tells her and his his advisors what happened at the office that day. And watch this, verse 13. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him very sensitively, since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. That's just what you want to hear at the end of a bad day from your wife, isn't it? 
And I got to tell you, if I were Haman, I would have said, I think I would have said to her, like, you know, sweetheart, Mordecai was of Jewish origin last night, too. If it were so certain I couldn't stand against him, why are you just now bringing this up? And it makes me wonder. Was this all part of a trap that his wife and his advisors had set for him? He couldn't have been much fun to live with either. Who knows? And just when things seem as bad as they can get, verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Nothing like having to go to a party with the king and queen and pretend to be having fun when your wife has just told you that you're going to die. This has got to go down on record as one of the worst days a guy has ever had. He's got to wonder if he's wearing a sign that says, kick me hard and multiple times. Here's a guy who 24 hours ago thought the world was his oyster. And less than 24 hours later, he's trapped inside that very oyster. It's fascinating. Now, there's all sorts of things that we could take away from this chapter. We could talk more about how God is rarely conspicuous, but always involved in the storyline of our lives. That, that would be interesting to talk about. We could talk about God's providence and how He's moving everything according to a plan that he has and that nothing can stop him. We could talk about the fact that Xerxes and Haman, the two most powerful men in the world at this point in time, are really just bit players in a cosmic drama that God is authoring and orchestrating. They don't even seem to know it. Talk about that. That would be fascinating too. But I have to say that what really fascinates me at least this time through the book of Esther, is how needy Haman is. You wouldn't think that he would be that needy. He's the second most powerful man in the world. He's got more money than most of us could ever dream of. And yet, the fact that Mordecai, a nobody really, doesn't show him respect has driven him nuts. In fact, it's driven him to his ruin. And he fantasizes about being, this is the second most powerful man in the world, fantasizes about being led around the city with everyone in the city seeing that the king delights in him. And I find myself asking, what's up with that? And I guess part of the reason that question is interesting to me is that I see that same neediness in me. Don't you see it in yourself? Sometimes in your own fantasies, don't you see yourself somehow being vindicated and validated in front of everyone you know? And like everyone who has shown you a slight at some point in your life, everyone who ignored you or told you you wouldn't make it, the boy who dumped you for another girl, the girl who wouldn't go out with you, the boss whom you could never please, the school that rejected your application, your sister who always seems to one-up you all every time you see her? Don't you feel that sometimes? This is what interests me about this passage. Why is Haman so needy? And then the other part of it is why, why am I so needy? And why are we so needy as people? 
I want to give you two words to hang the rest of my comments on. And uh, the first word is the word delight. And the second word is the word reversal. Delight and reversal. And I think, I think we'll understand why Haman, why we are so needy. And then I think we'll understand how we can deal with that once and for all. Delight and reversal. Let's start with delight. When Haman is brought into the king's presence, remember, the king asks him back in verse 6, he says, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And then, of course, in verse 11, Haman is required to repeat this as he leads Mordecai throughout the city. Well, it's interesting. The Hebrew word that is translated delight here is a word that means to be emotionally moved by a person because they bring you so much pleasure. Like there were other words that could have been used here, other Hebrew words that could have been used here to convey delight that really didn't include an emotional component. But the author of the book of Esther chose this word intentionally. You know, what makes this so ironic is that, as I have said, this is what Haman longed for. It's what Mordecai got, but it's what Haman wanted. In fact, it's why he refers to the robe three different times in his description of what the king should do for the man he delights in. He keeps talking about the robe, the robe, the robe. And the reason he he does that is that for the king to put his robe on someone was more than just giving that person, you know, some high position. It was a way of saying about someone, I affirm this person. I validate this person. This person brings me joy. I like this person. I am moved by this person emotionally. And can you imagine what what it would have been like to have the most powerful person in the world say that kind of thing about you? How validating would that be? Like, imagine that the most powerful person in the world would say that about you. That with all of your idiosyncrasies, with all of your rough edges, and all the stuff that embarrasses you about you, what if the most powerful man in the world would say, this person is so special to me, so moving to me, I so care about him or her, that I want to give him or her, my robes, and have him or her paraded around the city so that everyone can understand how much he means to me, how much she means to me. How validating would that be? And that's what, that's what Haman is, is longing for here. I was listening uh, just this past week, in fact, to... Um, this American Life. Anybody here dig This American Life? Anybody here listen to it? Nobody? Oh, somebody up there? It's the people in the balcony that are smarter than the people on the floor today. Um, it's, a, it's a radio show, but it's also a podcast. I was listening to the podcast version. And um, in this particular episode I was listening to this week, they were talking about rom-coms. You know what I mean by rom-coms? Romantic comedies. And, you know, romantic comedy movies. And they started talking about those kinds of movies. But then they moved to some real-life romantic comedy stories. They told a number of those stories. But the last story was about a girl who liked a guy. But she had something humiliating happen to her on a date with the guy. 
And she was, she was afraid that he was going to, you know, reject her. He's going to, like, I never want to see you again. But in the end, the guy told her that, and he said, I'll paraphrase, but he said something like this. He said, he said you're wonderfully strange, and that's what I like about you. The woman narrating the episode said this, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. I went back and, re, you know, typed it all out. Let me put it on the screen so you can read it with me. It says, this is, she says, this is my favorite moment in any rom-com. It's the scene in 10 Things I Hate About You when Julia Stiles reads her poem to Heath Ledger in front of the entire class. It's Jack Nicholson in As Good As It Gets telling Helen Hunt that he just can't believe that she runs into strangers all day long and they don't know that they just met the greatest woman alive. And it's Mark Darcy at the bottom of the stairs telling Bridget Jones, I like you very much just as you are. And she says, to me, the whole point of rom-coms is to set up that line. It's what we all want to hear from the people that we love most. Now, I'll confess to you, I haven't seen two of those three movies. Maybe you haven't seen all of them either. But I'll bet you understand what she's saying. This thing about wanting the people that we love the most to say those kinds of things about it. We want that. We want to be accepted and, and we want to be the delight of the people that we love the most. You feel that, or you felt it before, or you want to feel it. This inner longing to be validated by someone that you think the world of. What she's saying, it's really very interesting. She's saying that romantic comedies are so appealing to people because they play on the universal human need to be validated. We all want someone whom we think highly of to take delight in us. This, by the way, is why little boys so need their father's praise. And if they never get it, their father... If, <clears throat> if their father neglects them or worse, abuses them physically or emotionally, they're left with a gaping wound in their soul that may well shape them more than anything else in their lives. And this is why groupies follow celebrities wherever they go. It's the dream that one day that celebrity will reach out to them and in some way, shape, or form validate them. We're all needy in that sense. It's, it's part of the human soul. We all long for that kind of validation. We want the person that we think the most of to think the most of us because it's validating. None of us are so self-validated that we don't need that. And so here's the thing. Haman isn't wrong for wanting validation, nor is he wrong, I think, for even for having fantasized about what that might look like and feel like. It's just, and listen to me on this, it's just that Haman chose the wrong king to be validated by. <laughs> and there's a danger in that. You might write this down somewhere. Take note of this. You become like the king whose delight you long for the most. And let me say it again. You become like the king whose delight you long for the most. For instance, think about Haman. Here's a guy that is power hungry, he's a racist, he's a misogynist, he's mean, he's profoundly petty, he's hateful, and he's insecure. Who else 
does that describe in the book of Esther? Xerxes, the king. Haman is just like him. Why the similarity? Well, it's because you become like the king whose delight, whose validation you long for the most. Why? Because you want their validation. So I'm going to become just like you. So you'll think I'm like you and you will tell me how wonderful I am and you'll delight in me because we all know that everybody in the world is all narcissistic. So if you like you, you'll like me, you'll validate me. That's the way it works, right? And I think that's something that might be very good for you to reflect on this afternoon, this week. Who is my king? Who are my kings? What's the group of people? Who is the person or the people that I'm living for to validate me? You know something? It could even be someone who's not alive. There are men I know who are still longing for their father's validation and their father passed away long ago. Who's your king? And it's important because you become like the king whose delight you long for the most. You know, part of the reason that this is so fascinating to me is something that has been on my mind lately. You know, as a pastor, the two most significant concerns I have for the people who come to City Church are that one, you know the gospel. That's, that's like critically important to me, that you know the gospel. And then the second is that you be changed by the gospel. And in fact, you even see that reflected in our vision statement over here. And the reason that these are two of my major concerns is that Christianity isn't just about getting people saved. I think there's a, too much of an emphasis, in fact, on saying that we want to get people saved. That's not the emphasis of Christianity. It's about seeing people transformed through the power of the gospel. Because you see, the gospel doesn't leave people the way they were before they believed. It changes people. And one of the ways that the gospel changes people is that over time, it reduces your neediness. It reduces your ego. And it frees you from the relentless pressure of validation from people and proving and having to prove your value because that makes you self-centered. And you say, well, how? How does, it, how does the gospel do that? How, how can that happen? Well, the gospel says that if you have believed in Christ, listen to me, if you have believed in Christ, the king of the universe delights in you just as you are right now. And he has clothed you in the blood-soaked robes of his righteousness. He's brought you into his family. He rejoices over you. He is emotional over you. He delights in you. If you have believed in Christ, he delights in you just as you are. And you see, as you rehearse that over and over and strengthen that truth in your mind and in your soul, you find yourself over time gravitating more and more to this king who delights in you. And change begins to occur as you strengthen that belief because you become like the king whose delight you long for the most. Now look, I realize that there are those of you who find this idea that God delights in you 
too hard to believe. It's not that you don't believe in Christ, you do. It's just that you really struggle believing that he delights in you. You could give me a list as long as my arm of all of your flaws and all of your issues and all of the things that you have done wrong and all of the things you routinely do wrong. It's too much to get your head around. And maybe I should say your heart around. But it's still true. If you have believed in Christ, the King delights in you just as you are with all of that stuff you would tell me about. How? How can that possibly be? How can... Let me just speak... Let me, let me, let me just speak to, my, to me. How can he delight in such an imperfect person as me? I mean, I, I got a list as, as long as anybody's arm issues and things I wrestle with and struggle with and sin patterns and ADHD and everything else. And I wonder, how in the world could the king delight in me? My teachers growing up, they didn't delight in me because I had ADHD. I was all over the place. Sometimes my parents didn't delight in me. How could the king of the universe, the one with all of the glory in the world, how could he delight in a person as imperfect as me? Or you. Well, that's where the second word comes in, the word reversal. We've been talking about delight. Let's talk about reversal for just a moment. There is this enormous and comical reversal in this passage, isn't there? Haman is certain that he's going to be exalted by the king, so certain he can taste it. It's what he wants more than anything else. But in the end, the reverse of what he thought would happen happened. He's humiliated. He's brought low, and Mordecai, who he wanted to kill, is exalted. This enormous reversal. And all of this is to point us to the gospel. Because at the cross, the one who created life, the one who had ultimate glory more than any king on this planet ever has or ever will have, that one stripped himself of his glory and reversed places with us. We deserved punishment for our sins. He didn't. He didn't deserve it. But he turned the world upside down by reversing places with us. He was humbled so that we could be exalted. He died so that we could live. In this passage, think about this, Mordecai is exalted because Haman is humbled. But Haman didn't do that willingly. He didn't want to be humbled. He was involuntary. But Jesus did it voluntarily. And it's because of that and because of what he did on the cross that the king can delight in you just as you are. Because long ago, before you were ever born, Jesus Christ underwent the ultimate reversal. And you see, the reason, what we all need, what we were all created for, is this ultimate validation by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the King Jesus Christ, this ultimate assurance of our worth. We need someone. We, we, we need someone with all of the glory in the universe loving us like that. We need someone that we think the world of, thinking the world of us. That's whose validation we need. But here's the thing. If you continue to seek it in some other king or some other group of kings, Not only will you become like that king or that group of kings, you will live your lives constantly in need of more and more validation. You will be needy souls, bottomless pits of neediness, 
egotistical, self-centered, never, ever, ever, ever able to think of anyone else because you need them to continually validate you. Because here's the thing. Your king or your kings, they demand continued performance, right? You could lose their approval. And not only that, but whoever your king is will one day be brought so low that they become part of the very dirt that they were created from and that you and I walk on. And then, then, who will validate you? If your king is anyone but Jesus, every single day of your life, you will require new and fresh validation from whoever your king is, and you will slowly grow to be like them. I'm here to tell you that the only validation that will last is the king of the universe's validation. Jesus is the king whose delight you were created for, whose validation will finally cure your neediness and your insecurity and your ego and your selflessness. Because when the most glorious one in the universe died for you, he made a once and for all statement about you that can never change. And he will never die because God is faithful to his people. Because of that, he has freed you from the relentless need of validation and the relentless pressure of having to perform. The more you rehearse that, and the more you preach that to yourself, that he's delighted in you just as you are, the more you will begin to change into his image. Because who could not be moved by a king who delights in them just as they are? And who has done all for them that King Jesus has done for you? You will begin to be delighted in the one who delights in you. Now, some of you here today have believed in Christ, but this is a truth that you need to strengthen in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. You need to be rehearsing and preaching that over and over again. But there are some of you here today who've never come to believe that. You've never heard that Jesus Christ died on a cross for you. And that he gives you eternal life, not on the basis of what you do or what you have done, but on the basis of grace, he gives it to you. All you have to do is believe in what he did for you on the cross. And then change begins to happen. You've never believed that. You've never known that, maybe. I just want you to know this. You can change, too. But it starts with an act of humility. It starts with kneeling down at the cross of Jesus Christ and saying, I need you. I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. Lord Jesus, be my king. Be my savior. That's where it begins. And it can happen today right here in the privacy of your seat. And if you've never come to that point, I would just encourage you today, settle that issue. Let Jesus be your king. And you'll never regret that, I promise you. Let's pray together.
if you have never believed in Christ, um, the way to do that is pretty simple, really, and that is just to bow down right now at the foot of the cross. And I mean that in spirit. You're always welcome to bow down physically, but I mean that mostly in spirit. And that you just acknowledge that you're a sinner. And admit that you can't save yourself. And ask Jesus to be your king. And if you think to yourself, I'm not worthy of that, whatever, well, join the club. None of us are worthy of it. Ask him to be your king. For those of you who have believed in Jesus, maybe right now would be a good time and place to just confess that you have some, you have a king or some kings out there that you still are looking to for validation instead of accepting the validation that King Jesus put a stake in the ground to give you once and for all. And would you just confess to him your neediness, your insecurity, your ego, your self-centeredness, your need to use other people to constantly validate you. And would you just tell him that you are grateful for what he did for you? Lord Jesus, um, bring us all, everybody in this room, bring us all closer to you Let us delight in you because you delight in us. And Lord, as a result, change us into your image. Transform us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes these truths and places them inside of us by coming to live in us and we acknowledge we don't rehearse those enough. We don't preach those truths to ourselves enough. But Lord, would you remind us to do that? God the Father, we thank you so much for your plan and for what you did in the book of Esther and the fact that you made a promise that you were going to bring a Messiah and nothing could stop that and you did indeed. And there's a truth and a promise that you're going to bring the same Messiah back again. And we know that's going to happen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God the Father. Thank you, God the Spirit. Amen.